this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts and philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today is a special episode because we're going to be talking about philosophy and theology as we look at Dr. Jonathan Pennington's book, Jesus, the Great Philosopher. So we're going to be talking philosophy, theology, and life as we go over uh, what kind of philosopher Jesus ought to be considered as. So I'm, I'm really excited for this. Let's just jump right in. Dr. Pennington, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, this, I've um, been looking forward to this one for a while. Uh, before we jump in, can you tell us just a, a little bit about yourself? Uh, you know, where, where'd you grow up? Where did you do your, your uh, studies at? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I'm from Illinois, um, near St. Louis, and grew up there. Uh, in central southern Illinois, but then I lived for about 15 years in the northern Illinois area, where I think you are as mm-hmm. well, uh, and uh, undergraduate at Northern Illinois University, and then I went to Trinity for my MDiv before wow. moving to Scotland for a PhD, and then now we've been in Louisville, Kentucky for almost 16 years, where I've been teaching here, and and so, and we love it. It's great. Wow, that's fantastic. I went to Northern Illinois as well. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I wrestled out there. That's crazy, okay, man. Okay, neat, neat. Yeah. And then now I'm here at Trinity. That's great. So okay. I guess uh, Scotland's Andrews next. Is step. next. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. And I'll make it down to the promised land down there in Lowellville. Okay, uh, sounds like a good plan. Yeah. Um, well, so what's what's so interesting about this book, this is right up my alley. I love thinking about the Bible as inspired philosophy, as an inspired philosophy textbook. You know, I love that. It gets me all excited. So I was very excited to see you do this. Uh, and just knowing that you're at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, um, I know you're going to have a great perspective because you, you kind of have to, to be an employee there. So I think that's great. <laughs> um, but you mentioned in the beginning of the book how you go into like a mega church and you can see Jesus and these, these attributes of Christ, shepherd, king, savior, messiah, prophet, priest, you know, king, uh, Emmanuel, friend of sinners, but not philosopher. And I lament that as well. I want to see that philosopher up there. Um, so, as we get in here, what what kind of philosopher do you have in mind uh, for Jesus? Like, if we're going to attribute to him the role of philosopher, what are we talking about here? Yeah, yeah. Well, and the part of the illustration, as you may recall from the book, is that it's not only that we wouldn't describe Jesus as a philosopher. What's really shocking is that that is exactly how he would have been described in the ancient world, in the mm-hmm. ancient church, as you can see by the not only the literature of Justin Martyr and on and everybody, I think in the New Testament itself, too. But also in earliest sacred art, uh, you see Jesus is depicted regularly as a philosopher. So there's something we've lost. Um, now, 
Granted, it's an odd term. And believe me, it took several years of thinking and wrestling with my my good friends at the publishing house there at Baker and Brazos to to convince them that this was a good title, actually, because yeah. it's quite an uphill battle to describe Jesus as a philosopher. But I won, I guess, and mm-hmm. I won them over uh, in the mm-hmm. sense that saying that uh, I am redefining philosopher in a way that's very different than how it's used today, but I'm trying to rediscover its ancient sense. And what's a philosopher like that? What is, how is Jesus philosopher? Well, it's um, philosophers in the ancient world were very thoughtful people who had a vision of the whole world and how it works, but it always f- was for the purpose of coming down to how to really live well. So ancient philosophy was very practical. It was abstract, but it was for the purpose of practical living well, since you might experience true life or human flourishing or shalom, if you want to use an Old Testament term. And so that's the kind of way in which Jesus is clearly a philosopher is in this ancient sense. Yeah, I I thought that was a really helpful uh, clarification that you made. And uh, you took a couple shots at modern philosophers who who might uh, begrudge that, but uh, Dr. Uh, Paul Gould gave you a good review, and he's uh, he's a great Christian <laughs> philosopher. So uh, take it up with Paul if you don't like it. But um, I, I think you, I, I know some Christian philosophers will say, "No, we are trying to do that." Okay, well, if you are, then you're not in the category that's right. being described here. <laughs> oh, that's fine. I, I love actually, and I and I, le- I read philosophy widely. I actually love modern philosophy mm-hmm. too, but it is very different than what ancient philosophy right. was. That's the point. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's a great point. And and for some. Some people might say that's necessary. You get into the analytic tradition and they got to focus on like, what does a fact mean? And you spend your whole life doing that. But like you said, it's it's uh, bifurcated, it's separated off from, okay, why do we need to understand fact in order to live well? And that's kind of that's kind of the ancient sense of philosophy. All this abstract thinking about chairs and the the forms was to help us live well in this world. And this is interesting, too. You brought up uh, kind of modern uh, philosophers, modern ancient philosophers, philosophers who would fit that uh, ancient uh, characterization like Nick Offerman in uh, Paddle Your Own Canoe or Jordan Peterson, 12 Rules for Life, Beyond Order. Um, can you explain how, how those guys kind of fit the model of a philosopher? Well, I don't think maybe necessarily we should call Nick Offerman a philosopher, <laughs> not in the in the in any kind of sense, modern or sure. ancient, except sure. for he's a guru. That is, mm-hmm. he's a he's one who's offering a vision for living, and yeah. and that it's not a particularly well thought through mm-hmm. vision for living. I could say with respect to him as an actor and person or whatever, but it certainly lacks some obvious things. But um, I think someone like Jordan Peterson is closer to that, or Hélène de Baton, I think, is probably as good of a, a current philosopher as you can find. I mean, he writes mm-hmm. extensively on beauty and goodness. And and then there's a, there's actually a French tradition I've kind of discovered. Actually, uh, one of your professors there, Josh Jip, my friend mm-hmm. here, helped turn me on to some of the French philosophy tradition that is trying to write in this way. But, yeah, the point is there we all have a million people in our lives that are famous people or personal people that are trying to teach us ways to live well. And that's really the way in which all these people might in a very generic, generic sense be called philosophers, you know, granted some of them are more intellectual and more thoughtful and more comprehensive than others for sure. Yeah. And this is, this is something that uh, I've really appreciated about Roger Scruton who's recently passed away. Yeah. Roger Scruton. Kind of a whole life type guy, you know, he's writing on beauty, he's writing. Yeah. But he can also write a modern philosophy where he's going through all the moderns and um, and that's something I really appreciated about him. So what we're picking out here uh, in 
comparing or in calling Jesus a philosopher is like a, would you, would you use the term worldview? I think you did use it in the book. Um, but is that, is that an appropriate term to pick out what you mean? That's yeah, great. Uh, I actually cut this portion out of the book and maybe we can give a little link to it uh, yeah. in a little video I made uh, about the difference between philosophy, worldview and uh, cultural liturgy or social imaginary. Yeah. Um, basically, I don't find myself using the word worldview a lot. I'm not totally opposed to it, but I think Jamie Smith's critique of it and desiring the kingdom and imagining the kingdom I has, you know, is, I think is right in the sense that a lot of times when Christians use worldview, they mean a set of cognitive beliefs and or possibly some moralities. But what he's doing with cultural liturgies and, and then, of course, rooted in Charles Taylor, as he is, the idea of social imaginary, those are a little better terms, I mm -hmm. think, um, because they get to the more complex reality of what it means to be a human and to live in this world, to inhabit it in a certain way. And what I'm, and so I like those a lot. I would tend to use social imaginary or liturgy. Um, but what I'm actually offering is that philosophy is that. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe it's too uphill of a battle, but that a philosophy in the ancient sense was a way of seeing and being in the world is how I describe it, or mm -hmm. might, a way of inhabiting the world. And that's a little better than what we usually mean by the word worldview, which mm -hmm. again, tends to be primarily cognitive, which yeah. is Smith's great, great insight, I think. Yeah, that's great. That's, that's actually really helpful. Uh, some, some folks um, like the, the, the new Bavink school coming out of Edinburgh there, they're, they're trying to uh, re kind of reclaim the word, uh, the word world and life view. And I mm. think uh, that that kind of captures a little bit more of the social imaginary aspect to it, totally. the world and life. And that's kind of what it used to be called before we dropped the and life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, this way of being in the world kind of, you know, following Kuiper and, and, uh, and Bavink there. I think that's great. Um, and what's interesting about modern philosophy, uh, as you have critiqued it here, just, just slightly critiqued it is that again, people, Donald Davidson, John Searle, you know, Singer, Saul Kripke, they're all focusing in on what language or, or some aspect of philosophy. But there's actually not enough there to consider yourself a Cyrillian. Not that you'd want to, if you know anything about his personal life, but, but a, a Davidsonian, there's not enough there. And that's actually what Christ is offering is this full picture of uh, intellect and life as well. I thought that yeah. was so interesting. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's already a critique of this within ancient philosophy. Um, and I think I quoted somewhere in the book, maybe it's Seneca or other, maybe it's Plato oh, yeah. even, this idea that philosophy is just a bunch of thoughts and ideas mm -hmm. that separated from your personal morality and practice. Already in the ancient world, they're critiquing that. Yeah. And, but then especially uh, in the 19th century and beyond, when philosophy becomes an academic discipline, it gets more and more divorced from practical real life. And it, I, I don't have it in front of me, but I, th I quoted in the book, is it? Is it Emerson or somebody else? Yeah, says, uh, Thoreau. Thoreau, I think. It's Thoreau who yeah. says, yeah, we don't have any philosophers anymore. We have professors of philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's yeah. not just me. I'm not the one right. throwing, the, throwing the shade here. That's already <laughs> in the 19th century. People are recognizing this problem, right? Yeah. I thought that was interesting. So um, uh, I have a lot of friends who are Christian philosophers, and some of them have been recommending The Good Place. But it wasn't until I picked up your book and saw your quote from like, all right, it's time to it's time to watch this. Awesome. And that was um, uh, Chidi is an uh, for those who don't know, he's an ethics professor. Yeah. And, and it was actually striking the fact that he he had this problem with decisions because he was actually taking his ethics seriously. And it was funny, but it was funny because you wouldn't actually expect that. You wouldn't expect your ethics professor to be an ethical guy. You'd think he's just like everyone else who has studied ethics. It's a yeah. great insight. Yeah, I should have pressed into that more. I mean, he's kind of, he's, he's kind of 
and the and the solution at least is he's trying to do what he teaches yeah. but he's so paralyzed by it which i think kind of shows the bankruptcy of a lot of the modern philosophical turn it's uh, yeah. epistemologically very wastelandy mm-hmm. uh, if i could make up an adjective in a lot of ways <laughs> um and so he he struggles to know what's the right thing to do but at least he try he's trying to he's he's yeah. caring you know and he develops as a character across the series of course right. in, a good, in a good way you know yeah uh there's there's a word that you use and maybe um i know I'm not here to stump anyone or anything like that. Sometimes when we write, we uh, we, we grab a good term and put it in there. And and if you if you don't have this on top of your mind, don't worry about it. But but paideia, mm-hmm. this whole person education, are you yeah. is that still on top of your mind? Can you explain? Oh yeah, that I, I talk and teach about this a lot. Awesome. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This is um you know this is kind of like the philosophy worldview thing. Uh, it's in the area of education that 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 we you know, Western civilization is rooted in these Greek and Roman traditions and ideas, especially the Greek ideas that are really important, but things have, have devolved quite a bit. And especially with the injection of modernism, uh, things really go off the rails, I think in a lot of ways with the enlightenment and beyond. And that's certainly true with education. Uh, and the contrast then would be between how you think about what education is versus the Greek idea of paideia mm-hmm. and <clears throat> excuse me, education today primarily becomes um, the transfer of knowledge yeah. and or skills. And then for some people within it, the inculcation of a certain set of progressive sensibilities, right? That's kind of, that's, that's right. kind of what education is. Uh, or, and in the case of like the Ivy leagues education, as one friend of mine who teaches at one of those Ivy league schools without revealing too much <laughs> said to me just this past weekend, he said, you know, the Ivy league schools are in the, in the business of hoarding and distributing prestige, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I think is a, is a great definition of, of these schools, wow. which are great in so many ways. But I think that's really true. If you have, you know, one of those names after your title or, you know, center from whatever, you know, it, it gives a prestige to it. So all of those aspects of what education are, are not what Paideia was. Paideia was much more holistic. It was an understanding that we need to think about the body and the conscience and the mind and, and music and mathematics and cosmology and uh, astronomy and astrology even, and all these kind of things that together create a whole person for the sake of creating a vibrant uh, individual that flourishes, but especially a vibrant community of people that together can create a a place of of flourishing. And this is the great Greek vision, right? And it's really the vision of education that continues into the Christianization of the Roman Empire all the way and through most of Europe's history, really until the modern period, where it begins to break down in a pretty significant way in the Enlightenment. Um, it, It still retains for quite a while, but I'd say by the time you get to the mid 20th century, you already see somebody like C.S. Lewis lamenting this in yeah. a lot of ways. Uh, this is what the great books uh, tradition with the revival of that at the University of Chicago after World War II mm-hmm. um, be, is trying to recapture this idea of that education uh, is about forming citizens, liber- liberal you know, liberal education meaning yeah, the true system. liberal arts, yeah, right? true yeah. liberal meaning the trivium and the quadrivium. Yeah. yeah, so it's only it's kind of retained in the great books tradition or in the classical education to some degree tradition today, but it's forming citizens is the idea, and that is so different than how education is approached today. It's about right. skill set, knowledge, prestige, and particular progressive sensibilities in so many places, yeah. and that's the contrast to the Greek idea of paideia. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you bring up that great, uh, great classics tradition over in Chicago and it, that's Mortimer Adler. And that's my guy. Adler. That's why I love him so much is because totally. it's that, it's that Paidea. That's what he's going after. Well, he uses that term. So he wrote a little book called the Paidea proposal and it's, oh, that's he, where I've heard it before. yeah, that's okay. where it is. So he's, okay. it's a nice little book that kind of casts a vision for a great books education, which is rooted in the ancient Greek idea. Yeah. Yep, that's that's fantastic. I, I read his um, Syntopicon at the beginning of the great mm-hmm. books all the time. Uh, it's it's super helpful. And totally. I recommend that for everyone. Um, well, Dr. Pennington, so we've explained kind of what the philosopher idea is that, that we're calling Jesus. But how did you come to see Jesus as the great philosopher? Hmm. Yeah, good question. Uh, it was a it was a series of uh, developments over time. I am a Matthew scholar, you know, whatever that narrow thing is. And I spent a lot of last 20 years or so focusing a lot on the gospel of Matthew and teaching and writing and preaching, speaking about Matthew. And then that uh, one aspect of that, that I kind of started to specialize in almost by accident was the Sermon on the Mount. Mm -hmm. I started to teach a class on the Sermon on the Mount. And very quickly, I realized, first of all, I didn't know anything about the Sermon on the Mount. That was the first eye-opening moment. And then I realized that the Sermon on the Mount really is a a classic crucial text in the history of Christianity because it, it throws its, its rays or its arms or its limbs, its tentacles into all these other really big issues, especially of ethics. Um, And so I began to self-educate on ethics. And then I discovered that I'm a virtue ethicist as opposed to a kind of deontological ethicist. And that really the, at the end of the day, the key to reading the Sermon on the Mount well was to read it as a virtue ethics, a, a revelatory. You know, it's ba- there's it's not a pure virtue ethics in the Aristotelian sense, and that it's based on divine revelation. So there are parameters and a foundation that's more solid than a pure virtue ethics. But that the key to reading the Sermon on the Mount was to recognize it was a it was a piece of wisdom literature or a piece of virtue ethics training. And so as I that you know, kept evolving and things were making more sense. And then I began, as I was reading ancient philosophy, which you have to really, I think, to read the Sermon on the Mount well, you have to put it in its Greco-Roman philosophical context because it's it's speaking to and from that area. It's got a lot, lots of key words that are indicating that it's a philosophical piece of literature, makarios, teleos, phronomos, mm-hmm. like all these key kind of philosophical terms. And so that just one thing led to another over time and uh, conversations with with friends and thoughtful people like Josh Jip and others, Drew Johnson and others. It began to dawn on me. That's really what's going on is that Jesus is being presented as a philosopher, not just in the early church, but in the Bible itself. And then. As I continue to work in this area, and again, mentioned Drew Johnson, who's a close friend and is a real a guy who's really helped me think about a lot of this stuff. Um, the idea that the Old Testament is a piece of philosophy as well, and particularly the work of Yoram Hazoni, um, mm. and all it all kind of came together. And I and then seeing it in the early church as well, I began to say, okay, wait a minute, this is all. You can see it in Second Temple literature, like Fourth Maccabees is mm. clearly presents Judaism as a as a philosophy, you see it in Josephus. So it just all, all these kind of pieces started, started to fall into place. And uh, I don't know, as I can't identify a date in which I came to, re- <laughs> to pray to receive Jesus as my philosopher, but at some point I did. And it was kind of from all these different uh, streams of thought coming together. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I've, I was, uh, I was primed to it because um, uh, I used to, 
I used to read a lot of Gordon Clark and Van Til, and I was trying to figure out this debate between these old dudes. And uh, and I kind of came in through the Johannian literature and, and seeing, you know, the Lagos and all that. And, oh, how do we make sense of this? Um, and then, you know, I'm here at TED's and I work in a ministry. And so I'm hearing all these uh, sermons and lectures all the time. And so your book was really helpful because you you brought up things like uh, Bioi and how Bioi. So I, I knew that Matthew was a was a bioi. It's a it's a type of biography for a certain purpose. I knew that, but then you described how philosophers, uh, their students would do this for them, and that they would they would collect their sayings and put them together, and just like the the Sermon on the Mount, it just started all clicking for me. You know, that was really cool um, to, to see that the Bible actually presents that as as well. But also um, uh, Dura Europas. Can you explain? Uh, can you explain what you're talking about there? I thought that was so interesting. It is great. And I, and credit where the credit's due, that's to another friend of mine, Robert Kinney, hmm. who uh, has a classics background. He went to the University of Chicago and then ended up doing a PhD somewhere in Britain. And he works for the Simeon Trust. And his, his great uh, monograph on the Hellenistic dimensions of Matthew is really hmm. worth reading. And he, he talks about, that's where I got the idea of Dear okay. Europas. He starts with that as well. And basically it's one of the earliest, if not the earliest, you have to fact check that, but it's a very early house church in modern day Syria. It's now been destroyed by ISIS, but thankfully we stole most of it or the British and the French did <laughs> uh, when they dug it up in the early, early 20th century. And is basically one of the earliest house churches we have uh, and one of the earliest synagogues we have as well, right down the road from each other. And in both cases, it's very clear that Jesus is being depicted as a philosopher on all the the frescoes, the the artwork that's you know, basically painted into the walls. And in the synagogue, it's the same way. It's kind of shocking more for the synagogue because they have all kinds of images. You know, you kind of think, uh, hmm, I thought they were supposed to make all these images, but they do, right. including Moses very clearly as a philosopher as well. So, and then you start to look in the literature and it affirms the same thing. They all think, talk and, and think about Jesus as a philosopher. But the point of the Dury Ropas site was that it gives us some of the earliest evidence pictorially that this is how Jesus was as perceived. Yeah, no, and and that was again another connection that clicked for me. I was reading uh, Robert Cavolo's Fashion Theology, and I didn't really understand how uh, the the early church fathers how much they cared about what you dressed like and what you wore and how you yes. should wear not a toga but this other thing that's supposed to be more modest that I think looks exactly like a toga. <laughs> and I didn't realize how the the emphasis they they put on the way you dress. And so to see Jesus with a philosopher's haircut is a big deal. To see yeah. Jesus in the philosopher's robe is a big deal. And so it's not just reading into it. Oh, look, doesn't he kind of look like a depiction of Plato? No, they depicted him that way intentionally. Yeah. Yeah. That's which good. is just fantastic. And um, Moses too. Moses. And Moses. Yeah. yeah. And Moses was another one, uh, which is just fantastic to think through. Uh, another one for me that was really interesting is, is Justin Martyr. Uh, because um, when I started getting into philosophy, it was kind of cool to discover that we, we had some philosophers in here. Augustine was one of the great philosophers, Justin Martyr. He's kind of this, this uh, Platonist guy. But you you'd brought up that his name wasn't Justin Martyr until after he was martyred. <laughs> so before okay. that, he was, he was Justin the philosopher. Right. Which is insane. We This is the whole thing of our Christian past that we've lost. Mm -hmm. I think that's like really sad, but I'm excited about this book because maybe we can reclaim this. I'm open. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so I wanted, I wanted to ask... Um, how does viewing Jesus as the great philosopher, how does that help modern Christians? So we're, we're regaining this. We are um, retrieving this idea of, of Jesus as a philosopher. What, what could that do for Christians today? What, what should that do? 
Yeah. So you may recall, I talked a little bit about in the early part of the book that I do think we, there's some losses, I think by not doing this or by losing this image of Jesus, of course, uh, just to be very hopeful, it's clear, you know, by talking about Jesus philosopher, in no way I'm diminishing the other aspects of his, you know, deity, his incarnate reality, his saving, his, his savior king, you know, all these things as well. Yeah. But just trying to add uh, to this kind of lost image. And I think by by losing this image of Jesus philosopher, I think we have lost a number of things like the we stop asking some of the most important questions the Bible is actually trying to address really more relational and emotional and flourishing and happiness questions. And so I think um, we've we've there's a set of questions that are really important to ask of the Bible that just don't even dawn on us anymore because of the loss of this image of philosopher. And I think we also, I think I describe it as a chest of drawers that we kind of have Christianity and religion and faith as kind of like maybe the most important top drawer, but it is just a drawer. And then the rest of our lives, we kind of figure out through other gurus, Jordan Peterson or Oprah or Warren Buffett or whatever it is, Chick-fil-A, whatever. We figure out other ways to kind of make sense of our lives. And we kind of think of the Bible as the religious part of our lives, the separate part rather than the kind of practical part of our lives. So those are some of the things we've lost. I think conversely, when we regain this image, I think it helps us ask a set of questions of the Bible that at least I had never been taught to ask, like, what does the Bible say about true happiness? Or what does the Bible say about metaphysics? Or what does the Bible say about uh, the uh, emotions or relationships? You know, that those key questions in ancient philosophy are ones that the Bible is intentionally trying, trying to address, but we haven't, we just haven't had our uh, antennae tuned to them, you know? And so I'm trying to give us another tool, like, uh, you know, like uh, you think of, uh, you know, a Geiger counter or something that it's a certain kind of tool that measures something like you could be looking at a rock. And if you just have a sonogram, you know, you won't get much out of that rock. But if you start having a Geiger counter or some other kind of tool that measures a certain thing, then you can see something in the rock that we couldn't see. And I think the Bible hasn't changed by what I'm suggesting, right. but it, it gives us an avenue of of things to see in the Bible that we've, we've neglected. Yeah. I, I think that's huge as well. And uh, yeah, I started getting into philosophy, and then I started asking the the Bible these kind of questions, and it was just kind of a random thing. And then I kind of learned that that was okay, and that was something I should be doing. Um, but something else that you you uh, said we might be missing is that we've limited our witness to the world. Mm. And I thought that's I think that's right on. So I work in campus ministry with athletes in action, mm. and uh, I've had a lot of. Uh, credibility with with young dudes on campus because I read Jordan Peterson because I listen to his stuff and because I don't agree with him. I love the guy. I pray for him daily that that he'll trust in the Lord as his savior uh, for real, for real. You know, if you listen to him, it, that, there's a lot of layers to that. But like mm-hmm. genuinely think of the Logos as the second person of the Trinity. Um, but people are, are they they perk up because I'm not afraid to talk about Peterson and order and chaos kind of stuff. Um, so how how in your mind? Uh, when we look at Jesus as philosopher, how could that help uh, expand our witness back out to the world? I think you just gave a great example of it. And that is, that's really, um, you know, it has, it's a way of inhabiting the world, you mm-hmm. know, to get back to that. It's a way of inhabiting the world. That's not anxious. It's not aggressive. It's not defensive. It's not attacking. 
And of course, you're you've always had Christians that are that way, Tertullian, for goodness sake. I mean, but and all around uh, down to today, I mean, you can inhabit the world that way if you want. I don't find it very life giving uh, for myself or for other people, nor quite exactly what Jesus did. Uh, the only people Jesus fights with are are people that are are. Um, too conservative. <laughs> he doesn't usually he doesn't usually fight with uh, liberals. I mean, he has some disagreements with the Sadducees or something. For the most part, he's in conflict with people that are uh, too narrow. Right? That's his main people that he would ever be aggressive towards. For the most part, I, I think the Christian witness is strongest when it's constructive and dialogical and kind and um, takes the Augustinian route, not the Tertullian route, and says all truth is God's truth. And to plunder the Egyptians right. that we we gladly read and learn from anyone we can with strong convictions of Holy Scripture as uh, the guiding principle and the guiding and the the judge and the and the shaping thing by the power of the Spirit in our lives. But we're not afraid because God's in control of all things, and we can learn. There's something to learn, something good and true and beautiful to learn everywhere. Because all of things, all is created and all humans are created in God's image. And so that's just a way of inhabiting the world that I think is is beautiful and good. Yeah. And I think does really increase our witness that we're not anxious. We don't have to live in anxiety yeah. <laughs> about, you know, the church is not fragile, as I always tell my students, right? Mm. I mean, according to Jesus, the church is not going to be prevailed against. That's right. And uh, so we don't, we don't have to live in this sort of anxiety uh, about everything. We can, we can be constructive, positive uh, humble people. Yeah, that's great. I really, I really like that. Another aspect of this, uh, which was really encouraging to me, was to think through uh, a follower. So, like the original Christians were called followers of the way, and that's very like ancient philosophical type stuff. You could tell if someone was a, a Platonist, or you could tell if someone was Aristotelian, or by how they acted and and how they dressed and how they treated people. They were out there trying to live that out. I, I just love that idea that if you're a Christian, you people should be able to tell that you're a Christian. Just like you said, anxiety. I don't know if it has to be by how we dress, but there's there's some modesty stuff in there. There's some, you know, not just mm -hmm. sexual modesty, but all sorts of stuff. How you live, like people should be able to tell that you are a follower of the way, that you follow the, the philosophy of Jesus. I thought that was so encouraging and sad. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's good. I, I don't know the name of this. So some friends of mine were telling about there's some Instagram or Twitter account that that uh, shows pictures of mega pastors and their wa their fancy watches and their fancy shoes. You know, it's just kind of a think about the dress thing that yeah, right. I think I think it probably is pretty revealing if if that uh, is about your Christianity, if that's a sort of big right. part of how you show up. Super expensive watches and 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 shoes or whatever. But yeah. but more importantly, you know. It's just a good to point out, you know, the word disciple is not found in the Old Testament. You know, like, where mm. does that come from? How does that become this main idea? Well, it's a Hellenistic idea in a good sense. It's this idea, idea that the rabbinic tradition itself comes from the Hellenistic philosophical tradition. And Jesus wow. is in 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 line with that. In other words, the idea of gathering around a sage, a wise person, mm -hmm. rabbi, if you want to call it, philosopher, whatever you want to call it, living with the person, especially learning their particular way of seeing and being in the world, memorizing their teachings, seeing how they live their lives and in integrity or not, repeating stories about them. That's the Halakha and the Haggadah tradition. This is the, this is the whole rabbinic tradition. And Jesus is, that's modeled after 
the philosophical schools of of Plato and Aristotle, and then later, you know, the the Stoics and others, Epictetus, Epicurus, you know, yeah. all these, and that's where that comes from. And that's nothing to be scared of. That's it's a beautiful way of thinking about what Jesus came to do. He called learners, disciples, to follow in his ways, both what he taught and what he did. And that's what it means to be a Christian, to be a disciple. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's so apparent from the gospels that to be a Christian is to be a disciple. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, uh, and I think it's a, it's a beautiful image. So. I love that so much. And, and again, uh, it, it does open up the old Testament, uh, to, looking at Solomon as the philosopher king 300 or 400 years before Plato wrote the, the Republic, you know, or to look at Job. I wrote a paper here at Ted's uh, for, for Dr. Carson, A Biblical Theology of Wisdom. And as I was doing it, I saw Job as like a proto-Platonic dialogue. You know, it's, it's on theodicy or, or justice or just desert or, you know, getting rid of their mechanistic view of yeah. retribution or something. But it's, it's a Platonic dialogue with real people. You know, Plato wrote with uh, ink probably and some kind of papyrus or something. And God wrote with time and space, but he gave us a platonic dialogue to think through proto, whatever. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So it's really, it's, it's opened up my mind. Um, but as I think about um, how I want this, I want this to happen. So I'm going to be working for this. Like I want people, I disciple to think of Jesus as a philosopher, as well as prophet, priest, King, Lord, um, but there's a there's a couple of different conceptions that that could play out uh, if this were to become a movement that picks up. There's like the kind of Dutch Reformed tradition of let let's well it might be too broad, but at least maybe let's stick with a Kuiper. Let's transform culture. Let's create like a Christian subculture, but let's transform and let's go and and let's spread out the to the culture. There's also like the uh, Benedict Option type way. Of like, let's create a little culture and it'll be porous and then people will kind of join us. Um, as if people were to view Christ as philosopher again and and really take that whole view of life um, aspect, what kind of Christian culture <laughs> should happen? I'm, I'm sorry to put you on the hot seat here, but yeah, genuine, I'm, 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 yeah, I don't I really don't, know. Yeah, uh, I don't have a really clear answer in my head. I <laughs> And I don't want to be unfairly critical of anyone uh, from what I understand of the Benedict option. But again, I, I may be not, I'm sure I'm not understanding it fully, sure. but I'm not as inclined that way, mm -hmm. even though I'm sympathetic, I understand it. Yeah. Um, I tend to probably be more on the engage and transform side. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you use the old categories of, of Niebuhr, you know, his famous Christ and culture is mm -hmm. one way of getting at this, you know, the kind of Christ transforms culture kind of approach. I, you know, I just read this fascinating little, I mean, tiny little like 30 page booklet by John Tyson, who's a pastor, an Australian pastor in Hell's Kitchen, New York. Mm. And it's called uh, the creative minority. I really liked it a lot. I mean, I, I'm about to go through it with the staff at my church uh, and his idea uh, is that we should expect to be a minority in culture, but that our energy should be giving towards being creative or constructive. Hmm. Um, and I really like that. And it just really resonated. How I've usually described it is um, build beautiful things, build with beauty. Yeah. Uh, I was the director of our PhD program here for the last nine years. I just recently um, resigned from that so I could do more church ministry. And the one of the big 
acronyms that my staff always knew and laughed at me about was uh, BWB, you know, build with beauty. That is let's, or build beautiful things, BBT, you know, just let's, let's be people who are constructive and build beautiful cultures, build beautiful um, habits, build beautiful relationships. You know, that goes down to everything from like serving hand-selected cheeses every week at our doctoral community gathering and building a room. I built space, you know, I built certain spaces in the library for our PhD students. And, and uh, I don't know, I don't know how that fits. And that's the, I don't think it's the Benedict option. I don't, I don't know what it is. I don't really care that much. I just yeah. think that's what I want to give my energy to is, is being a beautiful person and building beautiful things and inviting people into beauty because, because beauty really is what motivates and transforms us. Duty yeah. crushes, beauty transforms. And so mm-hmm. whatever that looks like, that that's for me is the key word is be it's very Roger Scrutinish uh, yeah. idea as well, right? So uh, I'm like not a, a deontologist either. Yeah, that's Kant that's would be fair. rolling in his grave right I'm, now. Yeah, I'm definitely not a deontolo- <laughs> deontologist. So yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I feel like I still need to think through that um, yeah. at our church uh, where I'm not the lead pastor, but one of the one of the we share the pulpit, and then also I you know just have some influence on the, at the leadership level. Um, you know, this is what I, the lead pastor talk a lot about, and really we're trying to cast a vision for our congregation and our staff for is this idea of, of being a place, being a beautiful place that, Mm -hmm. that invites people to come in and, and find beauty and then go out, you know, to build, to build beautiful. I think it's both. So I don't know what that, where that fits in your taxonomy. I don't know, Uh, but I'm still still trying to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just a, a super small brief follow up here. So when it comes to like Paideia and our kids, um, should, I don't want to give any, like, I don't want to bind anyone's conscious or conscience or anything like that, but I'm, I'm thinking like when it comes to inculcating Paideia in our communities, how, how do we do that? Should, do we, do we promote like a, a Christian uh, school or the church as a Christian school? Just any, any thoughts on how we go about inculcating Paideia in, in our congregants and in our children and ourselves? Yeah. Uh, I also wouldn't want to buy anybody's conscience, not only just for that reason, but also I really, I, I think it varies by person yeah. and locale. I mean, I really right. do. I mean, I think, uh, people certainly should follow their own conscience about schooling for their children. Mm-hmm. We've done a wide variety of things. We've done, we homeschooled for a long time, Christian school. Um, I'm not opposed to public school at all. I think it depends on your area. I mean, you know, without getting too specific, I don't think the public schools in the area I live in are very good mm-hmm. <laughs> in a lot of ways. And I'm not alone in that perception. Sure. Uh, not only academically, but also just kind of culturally based for a number of reasons. So uh, for us, that's not been our preference, but I think in a lot of loca- maybe somebody locally here would disagree and that's totally fine. Or in another place, I could imagine that being a good solution. So, uh, yeah, I, you know, you always have to remember that education is really about the home anyways, not, yeah. not even if you're a public school, that's true. The, the, inha- the, the, the habits and the, the culture and the timbre of what you create in the home is always going to be much more significant than what happens in the schools. And I do think we tend to put too much weight on the school because I mean, if you're, if you're good, solid Christian parents and you're involved deeply in your kids' lives and homework and worldview and church involvement, 
that's far more important than whether you homeschool, classical school, Christian mm. school, or public school, I think. Yeah. So that's helpful. That's, that, that's going to be a breath of fresh, fresh air for a lot of the listeners. Yeah. Uh, well, Dr. Pennington, with the last just couple minutes here, can you give us a taste of eudaimonia and um, the, the virtue ethic uh, that, that you kind of lay out in the, the last chapters or? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, eudaimonia, this great Greek word from Aristotle and the whole tradition is how we know ne- what we now translate as flourishing. It used mm-hmm. to be translated as happy, but in English, the word happy has become very weak and yeah. not what eudaimonia meant. So we're, we now translate it typically as flourishing. And um, yeah, maybe I missed your question in there, but uh, the, that's just a really important idea. And so the question that I ask is, well, of course, that's a big topic in ancient philosophy. And so I say, okay, does the Bible have anything to say about that? Well, lo and behold, it does. Mm -hmm. And I think it basically in the Hebrew scriptures, it's shalom. It's the idea of of flourishing and both individually and corporately, or another Hebrew word, asher, Mm -hmm. in in the construct form ashray, which is like what Psalm 1 is about. And then you get into the New Testament, it's makarios, uh, which is another Greek philosophical term, but it means happiness or flourishing, teleos, being whole or complete, um, phronomos, which is this, these are all words from the Sermon on the Mount, uh, this idea of being um, a wise, practiced wisdom, or teleos aner, a, a complete person. Yeah. And this, which you see in Paul as well. Yeah. And, and all this together you know, is it really expands our vision of what Christianity and the Bible is trying to get at. And it's that God cares about the restoration of his image in us fully. Mm-hmm. And the that really Christianity is a is a therapy of the soul or a medicine. This is how the church fathers talk about it a lot. It's medicinal to heal us that the that the image of god might be fully manifested in us yeah. uh, that we might become the teleosoner that we because jesus was the perfect and complete human and and we as we are more conformed to his image by the power of the spirit that he is now sent he and the father are sent that we are uh, becoming fully human mm-hmm. and and you know virtue maybe you don't know this but virtue is from virtus which means humanity or man or humanity hmm. as opposed to vice vicious is like an animal so even the basic idea of of virtue is that we're entering into the fullness of our humanity I mean, that's the greek mm-hmm. idea and i think it's the biblical idea as well and that jesus who is the great philosopher and the great god incarnate um, and the great savior and king he both models for us and by his own sacrificial death and regeneration of the world resurrection and then the sending of the spirit actually enables humanity to re-enter into the fullness of what it means to be truly human that is virtuous. So yeah. that's how I'd say it. And that's where happiness is found. That's where true flourishing is found. Man, and that that gets me so excited. I'm I'm getting all amped up because the the virtue vice is so helpful. You know, uh so Aristotle says we're the the thinking animal, the rational animal. And it's the biblical depiction we're the image-bearing animal. We're the ones he's breathed his breath into and when you at when you're engaged in vice you're acting more like an animal you're not acting like a man and we always think well that guy's really virtuous he goes above and beyond with this conception it's you know he's he's acting like a human he's acting like he ought to act like being being virtuous is what we were designed that is our telos to be virtuous and when you're not you're acting like an animal you're not acting like the the human the image bearer who's been given dominion over the animals you're acting like someone who who is 
you're acting like one of them and you need to, it's crazy. I love that. I love that so much. It's really helpful. Here's a little, here's a little mic drop blind blowing along those lines is think about the story of Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, Daniel, who is clearly a, a sage. He's a philosopher, Mm -hmm. uh, magi, even if you will. Right. And that he, uh, the contrast of him and particularly of God of the God of heaven worth this greatest King on earth who is full of pride. He literally becomes an animal. Yes. I mean, well, literally psychologically he does for a while. And that's this like really stark picture of the difference between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of humanity. Yeah. Oh man, that's awesome. I love that. And then that just amazing expression when he comes back from that, you know, and, and, and that's like one of the best, that's one of the most epic uh, depictions of God in the whole Bible is, really is. talking about, who God is after he's experienced that. Hmm. Oh, that's awesome. Well, Dr. Pennington, uh, thank you so much for, for being generous with your time here. Thanks for this book. This is awesome. I'm going to be, let's see if we can focus again. Jesus, the great philosopher, rediscovering the wisdom needed for the good life. life. I love that it's rediscovering because we used to think of Jesus as a great philosopher and we need to recapture that. We need to reclaim that. Uh, fantastic. Uh, Dr. Pennington, thanks so much for coming on the podcast here. Uh, if someone wanted to, hear more about this book, uh, where, where might they be able to go? Yeah. Well, thanks Parker. Let me just say you're a great interviewer and and I really appreciate the kind and thoughtful engagement with the book. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah. So if you go to www.jonathanpennington.com, you'll see lots of resources, other things there, tons of, of, uh, sermons, lectures, video, audio that are posted there. Uh, my my daughter does a great job maintaining my social world and internet world. And we also have a, I have a ministry called Human Flourishing Ministries. And so that runs all of that, including uh, the Human Flourishing podcast, which is basically a repository of all my sermons and lectures and things I give all over the place. So if somebody wants to hear more or talk about these things, you can, you can go there to jonathanpennington.com. Awesome. All right. And, and last question for you. So you're also a pastor as well. In the coming years, are we going to find philosopher amongst the attributes of Jesus and the Lord? <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, I don't know. We don't have banners in our church like that. But uh, if we ever have yeah. them, maybe I'll push for that. That would be pretty cool. So that's awesome. a great idea. Thank you. Awesome. Well, this has been Parker's Pensies. And as always, all glory to God.